Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel. He gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they impaled them on the mountain before the Lord. The seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it on a rock for herself. From the beginning of harvest until rain fell on them from the heavens, she did not allow the birds of the air to come on the bodies by day or the wild animals by night. Rizpah is an amazing biblical figure and one, I'm afraid, who is often forgotten. I told the beginning of her story in my previous episode, and if you listen to that one, you know that this poor woman had already suffered more than a lifetime's worth of pain and sorrow. And yet now, we see that things can get oh so much worse. Like many of the other stories that focus on David, and especially on his coming to power, this story tries to do its very best to present David and his actions in the most positive light possible. But someone like Rizpah would definitely have seen his actions with a much dimmer view, even as she did her very best to persuade him to act differently. I want to honor her memory by telling her story. But that story comes with a few program notes. This episode is the second part of a two-part series, and if you haven't listened to the first part, you might want to go back and listen to Rizpah, the woman who ended the war, first. In addition, this episode does contain a violent and somewhat explicit account of human sacrifice to Yahweh, the God of Israel. An account that is very biblical. You must judge for yourself if that is something you want to hear. This story is really about Rizpah, who, for her part, was acting for the sake of the people that she loved her sons, and her step-grandsons. So powerful was her love and devotion that she brought salvation to the whole nation. Now that is a story worth knowing. This is Retelling the Bible. Start,
episode 7.3, Rizpah, the woman who ended the famine. under the meager shelter of a lean-to made of sackcloth. Despite her discomfort, she fought against the drowsiness, against the weight that seemed to pull her eyelids closed. For she knew, from long experience, that things were about to get very bad. It was the darkest time of the night, the hour was swiftly arriving when the scavengers would be abroad. It was bad enough when, during the daylight hours, the carrion birds came, but at least they generally came one or two at a time, and they did not attack her when she sought to chase them away. But the animals that came at night the jackals and the wolves, and sometimes even the lions, did not come alone. They came in packs, and they knew how to deal with opposition. Their attacks could be coordinated and brutal, and she carried many scars from her previous encounters. They were also becoming increasingly desperate. Famine had seized the entire land for three years now. Everyone had been suffering, of course, and the scavengers had fared no better than any others. They were lean and hungry, and so it was far from easy to scare them away from what looked to them to be a very easy meal. But as Rizpa looked up to the rotting flesh impaled upon the stakes on that hilltop, she knew that she could never abandon her fight against the scavengers. The flesh was barely recognizable by now, but when she looked at them with the eyes of a mother and a step-grandmother, their identities were still unmistakable. The two closest to her were her beloved sons. Spread out behind them on five stakes were the sons of her husband's daughter. She had known and loved each of them she knew that she could not abandon them now. She heard the high-pitched screams of the jackals in the distance and felt a familiar chill pass over her. She knew that they would be here soon. She knew that her nightly trials were about to begin again. How? had it come to this. Mm -hmm.
the war between the house of David and the house of Saul was over. Ever since Saul's old general, Abner, had switched sides after the son of Saul called him out for raping Saul's concubine, Rizpah, no one had been able to stand against David in all the land. When it had all ended, when Saul's son and heir, Eshbal, had been killed, David made a show of being magnanimous. He allowed the two sons of Saul by Rizpah, Meribal and Armoni, to inherit Saul's old estate. The sons of Saul's daughter Barab, who were now also orphans, joined them to farm the property. What is better, David made a covenant with Meribal, saying that there would be peace between their families. He invited him to come and eat at his table and gave him a small stipend, with the understanding, of course, that he would not rise in rebellion. But the fact of the matter was that the mere existence of any sons or grandsons of Saul was a threat. They didn't need to be actively organizing or fighting against David in order for the people to turn their minds and their hearts to them and away from David. This was especially true when things were not going well in David's new kingdom. Things did not go well quite often in those early years. It is unfair, of course, but the simple fact of the matter is that kings get blamed for everything bad that happens, whether they have anything to do with it or not. When the famine began, people didn't necessarily make the connection to the lack of rains or the failure of certain key crops. They looked to David with the expectation that he could manufacture food out of the dry air. So, of course, people grumbled and they complained, and they spoke longingly of the days of Saul, when there had always seemed to be enough grain. They also began to wonder what had ever happened to those handsome sons and grandsons of Saul. And so it seemed that even if the house of Saul was not in active opposition, they were still a threat to David. Things got worse. People can usually manage one bad year, but when the crisis goes on for two years, and even three, they start to look around for someone to blame. Rizpah could not know what was being discussed in the inner councils of David's court, but she had enough experience with tribal politics to hazard a good guess at what they were saying. In fact, 
she was pretty sure it went exactly like this. The advisors went to David and explained the situation. The people were hungry and angry, and they would soon turn their fury on the king unless he found some way to redirect it. The perfect solution presented itself after only a little bit of discussion. The best way out of this mess was to blame it on the previous administration. How was that possible? How could the ongoing famine be the fault of Saul's administration? It wasn't going to be easy to convince the people of something like that. But David's administration had certain tools at their disposal. In particular, the priests of Yahweh owed him a few favors. The inquiry ceremony was very public. The king went out before the people and bowed low before the priest, before asking him to reveal why Yahweh had sent the famine. And the priest consulted the Urim and the Thummim, squinting at the throne stones for a considerable time before standing up before all the people and crying out that the famine was a punishment for something that, you guessed it, King Saul had done. And what was the sin that Saul committed? Apparently he had attacked some Gibeonites. To tell the truth, no one was quite sure when this apparent attack against Gibeonites occurred, but that hardly mattered. The priests proclaimed that this was what Yahweh was mad about. At least everyone understood that anger because everybody knew that there had been a covenant between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. Whatever else Yahweh was, he was the guardian of covenants. Of course, God would punish oathbreakers. So somehow, the Gibeonites would have to be satisfied. Otherwise, God would continue to punish the people of Israel with famine. But here was the most predictable part of the whole affair. As far as Rizpah was concerned, when David sent messengers to the Gibeonites to ask what would satisfy them, the answer that they gave was simple. It was proclaimed throughout the land that the Gibeonites would only be satisfied if the seven sons of Saul were made a human sacrifice to Yahweh the guardian of oaths. And that was how, as far as Rizpah was concerned, David came up with the perfect solution to all of his problems. Not only could Saul be blamed 
for all of his problems. The descendants of Saul, these potential figureheads for any possible insurrectionists, could all be wiped away in one swift blow. Oh, yes, Rizpah felt certain that she knew what David was doing. But she also felt as if she had the perfect accusation to throw in his face when he tried it. David was doing all of this, he said, because Saul had broken a sacred covenant. But what of the covenant that David had made? Had he not promised that Meribal, the son of Saul, and of his concubine Rizpah, could inherit his father's estate? Had he not made peace and a covenant with Meribal, and invited him to eat at his table? And so Rizpah awaited her opportunity to confront David. She did not need to wait long. Within a matter of days, David and several members of his war band showed up outside of the compound. David's war leader, Joab, called out the command in the name of Yahweh that the sons of Saul must be surrendered. But it was Rizpah who came out first. Did David even know who she was? Did he recognize the fact that in many ways this was the woman to whom he owed his entire kingdom? She did not know. She did not really care. She called out her accusation, actually daring to tell David to his face that he was breaking the covenant that he had made with her son, Mary Baal. She reminded him that his god, Yahweh, would not fail to punish any such oath-breakers. When she said that, she could have sworn that, for a moment at least, she saw a look of pure terror cross his face. But then, that was quickly replaced with what Rizpah was certain was a false look of puzzlement. She belatedly remembered that David had a famous reputation for being a good play-actor. Had he not once pretended to be a madman among the Philistines for weeks on end? Surely he could easily mimic puzzlement. I'm sorry, my dear lady, David said to her, but I'm afraid that you are mistaken. Yes, it is true that I made a covenant with Mary Bell, but not the one who is your son. There is another, the son of my old friend Jonathan, son of Saul. He is the Mary Bell who is my covenant partner, but this one has no such protection. Rizpah was stunned. 
This was such a blatant lie. She knew that Jonathan, her stepson, would never have given a son the same name as one of his half-brothers. Oh, really? She responded mockingly. So how is it that no one in the family, indeed, no one in all the tribe, has ever heard of this other Maribel? He was very young when Jonathan was killed, replied David. He was just a child, and today he is a cripple, so he doesn't really get out in public. I'm not surprised if you haven't heard of him, but he is the one that I made a covenant with. Rizpah would never forget the triumphant look on David's face as he ordered that all of the young men in her family be rounded up and taken away. And so the very worst happened. Not only were the two sons and five grandsons of Saul taken away, they were taken to the high place at Gibeah. There, before an altar to Yahweh, they were sacrificed in a brutal and bloody manner handed down from ancient times. They were stripped naked and impaled alive on freshly cut wooden stakes. This was no simple act of justice. This was not payback to the Gibeonites for something that Saul had done. This was a religious act, a sacrifice to placate the angry god Yahweh so that he might end the famine. It was a sacrifice, Rizpah and many others suspected, that David hoped would turn away God's wrath against him for all of his failings. And so it was a very public ceremony, with the priests presiding. And Rizpah came too. She forced herself to watch. She would not turn her eyes away. She would not deafen her ears to the screams of pain as these beloved young men cried out in their agony. She wanted the memory seared into her mind. She never wanted to forget what David had done. When it was all over, the people just left. Rizpah could not help but notice how none of them would even look at her as they shuffled awkwardly away, especially those who were closest to the king. But even as they left, she was confronted with a growing realization. Nobody was going to do anything with the bodies. They were just going to leave them there as a grisly offering to the gods and to the scavengers. They weren't even going to give them a decent burial. 
And as that realization washed over her, Rizpa collapsed to the ground in utter despair. And that was how she'd come to be there. She just never left. She took the sackcloth that she and a few others had worn to the sacrifice, and she used it to make her makeshift tents and lean-tos. The people from the surrounding countryside, recognizing that she was carrying out a holy vigil, brought her occasional gifts of food and other essential items. She just stayed and engaged in the daily and nightly battles with the scavengers. Every day and every night seemed completely the same, and she barely seemed to sleep. She quickly lost all sense of the passage of time, but others didn't. They all knew that she had been at her vigil for five months, from the time of harvest until the time when the rains were supposed to come, though there had not been proper rains for at least three years. And the word of what she was doing began to spread far and wide. The people felt for her. How could they not? What calls for more sympathy than the spectacle of a grieving mother, especially one whose only concern is proper respect and care being given to her children's bodies? But it wasn't only pity that the people felt. They also began to feel rage, because she was a constant reminder that what David had promised when the slaughter had been announced had not happened. After all, the sacrifice had been about placating the angry God so that the famine would stop. But the famine hadn't stopped. The people were still hungry. The weak and vulnerable were still dying. It seemed that David's desperate attempt to deflect the blame from himself for all that was going on was being shown up as a complete scam. The people began to speak the unspeakable aloud. Maybe the famine had not been caused by what the house of Saul had done. Maybe it had something to do with what had been done to the house of Saul. And, as more and more people spread the word of Rizpah and her solitary vigil, it became clearer and clearer that David could not ignore the waves of discontent spreading throughout the land. David decided that he had no other option. He went to the people of Jabesh-Gilead, who still possessed the bones of Saul and of his son Jonathan. He brought these to Gibeah, 
to where Rizpa slept beneath her sackcloth shroud, taking advantage of a brief respite from the scavenger attacks. David didn't disturb Rizpa's sleep. I'm pretty sure he was afraid to face her. He ordered his men to take down the bodies of Mary Bal, Armoni, and the others quietly. He left only a servant to tell the lady when she woke that Saul and all of his descendants would be buried with all due respect together with his ancestors. Her vigil was over. Her heart could be at rest. That was the closest thing to an apology that Rizpa got from David. But she noted something, and she was not the only one. It was only after the bones of Saul's family had been returned to his ancestors that the rains finally came and the famine truly ended. As the tales of these troubling days spread far and wide throughout the land, the way the story was told, it seemed that not many were inclined to give the credit for the end of the famine to David. Even more important, there were not many who would soon forget Rizpah and the story of her devotion to the children and grandchildren she loved. In the hearts of many, yes, she was the one who ended the famine. The story of David and Rizpah is very hard to perceive through the fogs of history. We can't say for sure whether David really existed, but if he did, he seems to have been an upstart of some sort who founded a new dynasty in Jerusalem sometime around 1000 BCE. If that is true, then there are just a few too many things in this story that are too convenient for David. When he is faced with a political crisis caused by a famine, he seeks an oracle from Yahweh that very conveniently places the blame for the famine on the house of the man whose kingdom he has taken. It is very convenient that the remedy for the sin of the house of Saul is that David has to put to death all of the descendants of Saul who might possibly become a focus of rebellion against his kingdom. And it is extremely convenient that when it turns out that David has a covenant with a descendant of Saul named Meribal, or Mephibosheth, I'll get to that problem in a moment, a covenant that would make it impossible for David to kill that descendant of Saul? It suddenly turns out that, no, it wasn't that Mary Bell that David couldn't kill. There was another one, 
the son of Jonathan, that you never heard of before because he's a cripple and doesn't get out. Like, never. And sure, it is convenient that the Mary Bell that he can't kill is no political threat because no one would ever accept a king who was lame. But, you know, that's just something that happens sometimes. Yes. Mary Bell's story raises some questions. His name is already confusing. He is called Mephibosheth in the book of Samuel, but Mary Bell in the book of Chronicles. I explained why I went with Mary Bell in the last episode. But even more confounding, there appears to be two Mary Bells, one son of Saul by Rizpah, and the other the son of Jonathan, son of Saul. And sure, maybe it's not all that surprising to see a name reused in different generations of the same family, though, as far as I can see, that would be the only example of such a practice that we could find in the Bible. I just found myself wondering if maybe, at some point in the compiling of this story, Somebody invented a fictional Mary Bal or Mephibosheth to get David off the hook for breaking his oath. Also, and this is something that I find a little bit suspicious, there are a few passages in which the Mary Bal that David has a covenant with is referred to as the son of Saul. I found that particularly interesting because, in most English translations, the translators participate in the cover-up by translating that as the grandson of Saul. Okay. Okay. Maybe I'm just a biblical conspiracy theorist. Once again, if David really had a convenient backup Mary Bell hanging around... I apologize for besmirching his name. But somehow, given that in this passage, David literally sacrifices seven men to save his political career, I'm not sure there's much of a reputation to be besmirched there. But I really don't mean this episode to be about David. It is the story of an amazing woman named Rizpah. I hope that she can be remembered as the extraordinary woman of principle and courage that she clearly was. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada by Kevin MacLeod, and the mood music for this episode is Follow Your Way by Michal Mojikiewicz. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.com.
www.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my Patreon supporters who back this podcast. You're amazing. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retelling the Bible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. <laughs>